Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm currently at home recording this podcast, probably for the same reason that many of you are at home, the coronavirus. Now, I'm one of the lucky ones, I can work from home, and I haven't been infected so far, but in a small or large way, the coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 has affected and will affect everyone. Daily, I find myself scrolling through the news to try and get some sense of what can be done. One thing is clear, though, front and centre of the response to this pandemic is the role of scientists. Certainly not a dull moment to be in the business. This is Jamie Lloyd-Smith, an epidemiologist from the University of California, Los Angeles. My academic brain is, you know, this is a fascinating event. This is the type of event that I've been studying and thinking about for decades. And here it is. It's happening. And it is an exciting and fascinating thing from that point of view. With that said, both from my own individual interest and from a sort of global public health interest, it's also this unfolding catastrophe. Here at Nature, we're talking to scientists like Jamie every day from institutions all over the world. In this podcast extra, we'll be hearing from Jamie and others like him as they battle to fight the outbreak. What is it like to answer the global call for science in the wake of the coronavirus? First off, we're going to Washington State in the United States, by many accounts the epicentre of the US outbreak, and the lab of Leah Starita, a genomicist at the University of Washington. Leah is a sequencer. She normally works with flu genomes, but since the outbreak, she's been adapting to help tackle the coronavirus. During her reporting, Amy Maxman visited Leah and took a recorder with her. You'll hear Amy asking questions from time to time. Here's Leah. Um, so obviously this started as a flu project. We've actually, you know, produced something like a quarter of the world's flu genomes mm-hmm. in the last year and a half. But that gave us this infrastructure um, that to we're this. now kind of pivoting toward COVID. So what do you have to do right now, like this past week, knowing you're going to be doing a bunch more sequencing? What are you doing right now? 
wow, they're spending a shitload of money. Um, <laughs> Leah and her colleagues have been given a $5 million grant from the Gates Foundation to transform their lab into a coronavirus sequencing centre, processing more samples and helping diagnose people that have the disease. When Amy spoke to them, their lab benches were full of boxes of untested samples, which they need to work through more rapidly. But it isn't just as simple as working harder. Like, because what, what do you need? Like, why? We need more, we need another extraction robot, we need more people. I'm trying to build an automated sample accessioning system with a company that makes robots, like automated robots, so that maybe um, a robot can take apart all of the boxes that we need. Robotic sequences are fast and efficient, but sequencing isn't the bottleneck right now. The, the rate-limiting step right now is that I need humans to basically touch every single sample that comes in, right? I can't believe so. that, yeah, so you ha- you have to rapidly hire people. That's yep. a bottleneck. Yep, yep, exactly. Once it comes here, I mean, these guys have capacity to do, like, thousands of genomes a week. It's not a problem. It's just, like... Getting to the step is the hard part. Leah hopes to be able to ramp up capacity to be able to test 1,000 samples a day. This would help identify positive cases, but also put people's minds at ease, knowing that they may not have the virus. But diagnosing cases is just one piece of the puzzle. Ultimately, researchers also want to help slow the spread of the virus. And that's what we're talking about next. We'll be heading to Italy, the hardest hit country outside of China. Stay tuned. Four months after the first cases in Wuhan, China, the virus has spread to more than 100 countries. Previous viral outbreaks like SARS or H1N1 flu have also spread widely, But with COVID-19, something's different. Here's Jamie Lloyd-Smith again. Unfortunately, it seems like this virus is sort of in a a sweet spot, uh, or a not sweet spot, where it is quite transmissible, quite hard to contain, and it, you know, is inflicting significant mortality and morbidity. And this virus, you know, a respiratory virus against which there is no population immunity, which is able to transmit through relatively casual contacts, and if it can do asymptomatic transmission. These are all the factors that we worry about most uh, in terms of giving rise to a pathogen which is very hard to contain. Containment has certainly proved difficult, and few countries are as aware of this as Italy, where tens of thousands have been infected. Flavia Riccardo, an epidemiologist from the Italian National Institute of Health, has been involved in Italy's response from the very beginning. We were in the unfortunate situation of uh, having our first case with no travel history and no known contact with, with confirmed probable cases. Italy did not find patient zero, the first person who imported the virus into the country, and that made it much harder to control. By the time Flavia and her colleagues could react, the virus was already spreading fast. When we found our case and then we looked for contacts, we found a lot of positives. So we we were in a moment in which we caught it, we saw it for the first time, we photographed, if you like, the situation when this had been going on for some time and this made it harder for us to, to stop it. Italy reacted quickly to contain the outbreak. 
implementing social distancing, quarantining cities, and eventually the entire country. Very literally ensuring people are not close together. And this is uh, affecting really everything. I mean, you, you know, you, you have to stop shaking hands. You have to, you know, keep a distance from people, not bunch together. Um, avoid being all at the same coffee machine. Coming to work, of course, you have to be careful about distancing. You have to be careful about washing your hands often. You know, when you go into a meeting, making sure that, you know, there's not too many people in that room, keeping the windows open, avoiding the lift, you know, taking the stairs. There are a number of small things that we need to ingrain into the way we do things. And Flavia thinks this approach is working. Cases appear to be slowing in some regions. But we'll need to wait. We see with a time span of about a couple of weeks what effect we have today. So we, we have to monitor the situation and, and, and move as we go. Unfortunately, it's not a thing that's over overnight. We have to be also prepared to be in a situation of response for a few months at least. Waiting and seeing is not always that easy, especially when such measures may cause upheaval in people's lives. I have a daughter that is now in another part of the region with my parents and I can't see her and I can't see my parents because of course they're over 70. But Flavia is sure that social distancing is necessary and she hopes people will stick with it and that other countries can learn from Italy's experience. The key, she says, is communication. We really have to translate some of the science into, you know, layman language, trying to explain why we're giving that recommendation, why we can't expect a certain result. The strategies proposed by epidemiologists like Flavia and Jamie are devised and tested using models, simulations which allow them to virtually play out possible future scenarios. One of the great applications of models is that you can do all these thought experiments, like here's what an outbreak looks like, and then layering on various hypothetical control policies to see, you know, to try to give guidance or at least to enable policymakers to have information about that part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Clearly, people in policymaking roles are always balancing much more, like human rights and freedom and economics and all those other dimensions which are outside the domain of our models. But you can at least say, well, if you did do this, here's how much we think it would help. Transitioning from research to policy is a tricky manoeuvre. There's pressure to make quick decisions, but incomplete information leads to an ever-changing picture of what the virus is and how it spreads. And as different countries employ a range of strategies, it's hard to know what's most effective. So what should policymakers be doing? Are they getting it right? And what lessons can we learn for future outbreaks? That's up next. Stay tuned. As the coronavirus outbreak spreads further and further, governments worldwide are implementing policies to slow or contain the virus, from hygiene advice to travel bans, from cancelling cultural events to quarantining entire cities. One common approach has been to start screening travellers for signs of the disease. But according to Jamie Lloyd-Smith, that's probably not that effective. People are doing fever screening as a means of assessing, you know, should we let this person off the cruise ship or whatever. Um, 
and fever screening is being applied in all kinds of contexts across all kinds of societies. So I think it is important to put as much scientific heft as you're able to behind the message that that is a very faulty tool. Researchers are finding out more every day about how the virus is transmitted between people. But it does seem clear that it can spread before people even show symptoms. Inherently, every disease has an incubation period, so there's a period of time before you show your symptoms. And that's conventionally been the concern is that, well, A, these non-contact thermometers aren't perfect, and people who are doing it all day long it'll be a bit error prone. Many people won't have developed their symptoms yet. And increasingly, and we still don't really understand what fraction of people never show symptoms of that sort, but it could easily be, you know, tens of percent of people don't ever show those symptoms. And so they're inherently not screenable by those means. There are just too many cases that don't trigger the alarm because they don't have conspicuous symptoms. There are ways to try and catch asymptomatic cases but even these show unclear levels of success. There are these sort of questionnaires of have you been in contact with someone who has COVID-19, and if people choose, if they know it, and if they choose to self-declare, then that's another way you can catch people independent of their symptoms. But um, I think most people don't know, particularly given the level of diagnosis. And uh, based on our earlier analysis of flu pandemic data, um, many people may not choose to disclose if they do know. Researchers like Jamie are learning more and more about which interventions might prove effective every day. But to be effective, measures still need to be implemented by governments. I reached out to Claire Wenham from the London School of Economics, who specialises in the politics of health emergencies and outbreaks. Policy matters here. The way governments respond to an outbreak has a direct impact on the trajectory of the disease transmission within countries. We've only got to look at the difference between somewhere like South Korea and the USA at the moment. South Korea's policy, which was, you know, transparency, risk communication, testing everybody, minimizing social contact, social distancing, meant that they were able to get a real hold on what the disease looked like in their country, who had it, and now they've been able to reduce transmission accordingly. Now, the opposite approach is to kind of bury your head in the sand and pretend there isn't a problem, which is what we're seeing in the US and what we saw in Iran a few weeks ago. In the United States, cases have grown by the hundreds per day in the last week, and even that is considered by many as an underestimate. Since this was recorded, the USA has stepped up its response including limiting gatherings of 10 people or more. Just before I spoke to Claire, the USA had shut down travel from Europe, but Claire thinks that even this may be more of a political tool rather than one that combats the virus. It will appease voters, right? It will make the general population of the US think, you know, he's got our back, he's doing something, he's protecting Americans above all. In fact, across the world, Claire says that international agreements set out to guide countries on how to deal with pandemics have largely been ignored. But what we've seen in this instance is that actually the international health regulations haven't been adhered to and actually there's been several breaches where governments have taken much more protectionist positions. And so I think think this tells us that at a time of crisis, actually governments tend to focus on their own than than they do on 
a kind of collective responsibility to global health security. And that can't be that surprising, right? We as citizens from whatever country we are, we expect our government to look after us as their number one priority. But if advice isn't followed, can we rely on international collaboration to stymie the spread? A prescient question when you take into account that this virus could disproportionately affect lower income countries, which often rely on help and donations from wealthier nations to combat this sort of crisis. Such cooperation was key to prevent the spread of Ebola, for example, but even recommended advice can have difficult consequences. Claire thinks measures such as closing down schools and social distancing can affect women disproportionately. Most frontline healthcare workers, uh, somewhere between 70 and 90% globally, uh, are, are women. And if they're the ones on the front line of, of responding to an outbreak, we need to make sure that their differential needs are met. And then social distancing measures to respond to uh, outbreaks such as closure of schools. Well, who's picking up that additional care if suddenly your children can't go to school? Societal norms would tell us that would be women who are going to pick up that labor. So then what does that mean for their own their own jobs, their own job security, their own economic security? Claire argues that the kind of social upheaval we're seeing was predicted by social scientists. But she hopes that for the next outbreak, and there will be one, lessons will be learned. We need to think much more holistically about outbreak prevention and about pandemic preparedness and about what can we do to mitigate against these potential impacts of outbreaks, both primary direct impact, direct impact on population, but also the broader impacts on economies, social structures, uh, individuals. And so I think, you know, the key thing for me is that actually maybe we, we need to understand that outbreaks aren't just for epidemiologists and aren't just for virologists, but you need to have that social science expertise in the room as well. Since the beginning of the outbreak, researchers worldwide have quickly kicked into action, sometimes transforming their research, sometimes trying to help their country fight the outbreak, or sometimes just trying to make sense of it all. And all the time, remember, researchers aren't just studying this outbreak. They're feeling it too. In some sense, it's it's horrible to watch this inexorable progression, and you can sort of see it coming. Um, and perhaps before before it even happens, you're like, "Oh no, this has all the traits of a real problem." It's a very real concern, you know, uh, as a parent and as a child. Um, there are a lot of people who. I care about who may be put at risk. In this podcast extra, you heard from Jamie Lloyd-Smith, Leah Starita, Flavio Ricardo and Claire Wenham. The interviews were recorded by Amy Maxman, Anna Nagel and me. The show was also produced by me with edits from Noah Baker. As the pandemic continues, we're going to keep bringing you stories from the scientific world. But we also want to hear from you. Has your research been impacted by the pandemic? Has your lab had to close? Do get in touch with your stories at Nature Podcast or email us on podcast at nature.com. I've been Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. Selling a little... Or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.